You're listening to Vet Candy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Working Class. I'm Omar A. Lopez. And I'm Eric Meyer. This podcast is meant to cover employment rights and compliance with two lawyers from opposite sides of the law. In the following episodes, we're going to cover hot topics in employment law from both the employee and the employer's perspective. We're hoping that you can pick up some helpful knowledge that can help you in your next employment issue. Just to tell you a little bit about myself, I'm a plaintiff's side employment lawyer in New York and New Jersey and a board member of NELA New Jersey, an employment rights advocacy group. And I'm a partner at the first and largest cloud-based law firm in the world, Fisher Broyles. I'm a past president of the Labor and Employment Law section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. And I'm an avid blogger about all things employment law at a blog called TheEmployerHandbook.com. Just a little disclaimer here. As you know, no legal podcast would be complete without a disclaimer, but we're not your attorneys. You have to hire your own attorney that's competent in your state or your jurisdiction to give you real legal advice. But hopefully this is uh, some general advice that you can take with you that will help you in your next issue. So what are we doing today? Today we're talking about our first hot topic, contracts and restrictive covenants. Uh, Eric, does that sound exciting to you? <laughs> is this what you planned on doing on a Wednesday morning? I don't need a cup of coffee now. I don't know how I'm going to sleep tonight. Okay. This is going to be great. Right. So, you know, contracts and restrictive covenants. I think for our, you know, the sort of your general layperson, it ends up being a little bit of a terrifying topic. You know, um, we are taught, I think, in, in law school and then generally as attorneys, not to write in this very uh, difficult to understand language called legalese. Um, but most of the contracts I see end up being difficult to understand for the layperson. What's your experience on that? Yeah, that's about right. I, I make a concerted effort. Well, from time to time, I make a concerted effort to tone down the legalese and try to draft these contracts, whether they're restrictive covenant agreements or otherwise, in pretty plain English. But I'll admit it, you know, every once in a while I fall back on older forms that are probably written in legalese. So. I just decide not to reinvent the wheel and go on from there. So, you know, words like heretofore and wherefore, you know, the old English, I think, sometimes sneaks its way back into uh, our contracts. And, there's, you know, it's difficult to find a way around that. It's possible. <laughs> so uh, one thing that it, it's interesting to me, I think, uh, not so much the, the form of the contract, but backing up a little bit with the employer employee relationship is, uh, you know, when does it make sense to negotiate from the employee's perspective and from the employer's perspective, which I don't know a lot about, uh, what are the risks with permitting, you know, too much negotiation when it comes to these contracts? And, 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 I'll, and I'll tell you the, where I'm coming from. I think a lot of these contracts, rightly or wrongly, are kind of presented from, hey, here's our contract. This is what it is. We don't deviate from this. And that's a, uh, I think, an, just from a pure negotiation standpoint, it's an excellent way of displaying sort of your your power, uh, the leverage that you have as a sort of this big Uber employer. When I say Uber, I mean large, not not Uber, the the, uh, the car service. But um, 
But on the other hand, from the employee's perspective, you know, I think a, a lot of people feel like they just have zero leverage there or ability to negotiate. And I'm not sure that that's actually true. So what's your experience there in terms of, uh, you know, when is it right for an employer to to give a little on some of these terms and conditions? Uh, Omar, how many times during this podcast are we allowed to say it depends? So, so it's, a, it's a legal podcast. I would say probably a maximum of six times a minute. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So we'll, uh, okay. I'll use my first, it depends. And, and, and what it depends on, right, there's a second time, is who the individual is and where they rank in the hierarchy of the company. Okay. If this person's coming in as the chief executive officer, right? there may be more room for negotiation because the company may view this person as indisposable. We have to hire them so we can be more flexible on some of the employment terms, including the restrictive covenant. If we're talking about hiring someone who is further down the pecking order, where there may be a standard form of agreement that the employer traditionally gives out to its new hires, sign this or you're not going to be working here, there may be very very little wiggle room, if any, to negotiate at least the restrictive covenant portions of that employment agreement. Salary may be negotiable, other monetary terms may be, may be negotiable, but the actual restrictive covenant, what you can and can't do after your employment ends, that may be so far then, less. So then this to me, and I'm no economist, but I did take macro, you know, in college and, and all of that, but it seems like it comes down to supply and demand. If there is short supply for this position, for instance, you said the CEO or something that's very unique, then you may have a lot more leverage. And on the other hand, if the position itself is sort of a dime a dozen, no offense to any of the positions out there, but if, for instance, you have an opening for a salesperson and there are a hundred salespersons that are waiting behind you if you don't take this job, then you just don't have that leverage. Is that is that right? I think that's fair to say. Um, yes. And then I've exp- I've explored this before, uh, but not necessarily on this podcast. And that, and and I think it also changes uh, with respect to the some jobs. There's just not a lot of you, and other jobs there are. And I I always like to point at lawyers. Um, you know, we're sort of tripping over each other. There are lawyers upon lawyers upon lawyers. And it's it's interesting because we have a lot of law schools, at least in the United States, we have a lot of law schools. They're graduating new attorneys all the time. Our job outlook isn't fantastic. Um, and sometimes people graduate law school and they have a hard time finding a job. And so, you know, um, not to say that these agreements apply to lawyers in the same way, but just in terms of sort of, you know, supply and demand, there are lots of lawyers. And if an attorney is not going to take this position because they don't like a particular aspect of a contract, I think there's a lot of people lining up to take that spot. Um, Contrasted with, for instance, veterinarians, where you have uh, not many vet schools and not many veterinarians graduating. And so, you you know, the, the difference, I think, is you can't find enough vets for a particular job. So it seems like they'd have some more leeway when it comes to negotiation. That's fair. And also, I should point out for, for listeners who may not know this, because if you're not a lawyer, you probably wouldn't know this, but, but the lawyers generally wrote the rules on restrictive covenants like non-competes and non-solicitation agreements. So in 
most states, I'm only licensed to practice in two states plus the District of Columbia, a restrictive covenant, a non-competition agreement, cannot be attached to a lawyer. You can't have a lawyer sign a non-competition agreement. It wouldn't fly. It wouldn't be legal. In other industries, such as for a veterinarian, that would be, that, that could apply. Um, and Omar, to your point, if there is a shorter supply and a greater demand for veterinarians, that would increase the leverage that the potential employee, the veterinarian, would have to negotiate his or her way, not out of a restrictive covenant, but to maybe turn a 24-month non-competition period down to a 12-month or maybe a six-month non-competition period to change a geographic component that is, I can't compete anywhere within 50 miles after I, my employment ends. Could you change that to 10 miles or five miles if you have that leverage? Yeah, possibly. So there is that room for negotiation. And I, and I appreciate you sort of, um, I don't know that you said this, but I'm going to take it to mean this, that, that you look at at least my side of the advocacy relationship here to be looking for some give and take here. As a plaintiff's attorney, I'm not trying to, usually, I'm not trying to completely take away restrictive covenants. I'm not trying to completely take away a um, firm or practice's ability to protect itself from sort of that wayward employee that will, you know, steal all of your clients and take a half of your employees and open up shop literally across the street. So um, that's really not what, I, what I'm about at all. Um, and I suspect that on most things, you and I, Eric, are probably going to end up sort of meeting close to the middle of the road here on, on, on the idea that an employee and an employer, given some amount of leverage on both sides, can probably come up with a decent agreement that serves their interests. Um, I mean, that's, that would be fair to say, wouldn't it? We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. It is. And, and part of that from the employer's standpoint is, and this is a conversation I often have with clients that are seeking to impose some sort of a restrictive covenant upon a current or uh, soon-to-be employee is what is your legitimate business interest in imposing this restrictive covenant on this individual? Because that's something that if push comes to shove and we have to get into litigation over this, we're going to have to establish to a court in order to get what is called a, a preliminary injunction. There would be a lawsuit and ultimately the goal is to get the person with a non-competition agreement not to work for a competitor. So we have to be able to articulate to ultimately a court, but perhaps in the short term, what is that legitimate business interest in having this person sign a 12-month restrictive covenant that is nationwide, when perhaps a six-month that is narrower in geographic scope would actually serve that legitimate business purpose? Because you can't count on a court to do that for you 
later on necessarily and pare back an overly broad restrictive covenant. Some judges, and I think I'm getting ahead of our skis a little bit, Omar, and I apologize, are going to tear up that restrictive covenant altogether and then you've got nothing. Just from from your perspective, though, let's say a judge did tear up that restrictive covenant. Are we talking about tearing it up for that one employee in that particular litigation, or is this something that could sort of have a shockwave effect on uh, other similar agreements for that employer? I'd like to think it's just a one-off because the facts and circumstances can circumstances can vary from case to case, right? If I'm trying to enforce a restrictive covenant, twelve months. National Geographic scope against the CEO of a company versus trying to enforce that that same restrictive covenant non-compete against someone who cleans the C-suite, right? The judge is way more likely to tear up that restrictive covenant agreement for the person who cleans the C-suite, but that wouldn't impact the company's ability to enforce that against the CEO because it's just a completely different set of circumstances. It could be the exact same agreement, but your mileage would vary. I see. Based based on the, I guess, the particular dispute and the particular parties in the future. For sure. Okay. Um, but that. But say, for instance, I, I know this came up in, in some uh, arbitration agreements. I know New Jersey, at least, has taken some steps with respect to arbitration agreements and saying kind of giving out guidelines. This this particular arbitration agreement is not going to fly, and we're putting everyone on notice that if you have an arbitration agreement that looks like this, it's not going to work. And so, you know, I always, I always feel that that's kind of the danger when you're pushing the envelope with some of these agreements that may not even serve, you know, a legitimate business interest. If, they're, if, if, if push comes to shove, you may end up making bad law. Uh, when I say bad law, good for me. <laughs> Bad, bad for the employers. Well, and that gets back to a point you were making early on, Omar, and that's knowing your audience. Okay, If I'm trying to negotiate or if I'm trying to get an employee, a potential employee, to sign a restrictive covenant agreement, and it's written in a lot of legalese, and I'm handing this to someone who is not that sophisticated, right, who may not be able to afford, let alone decide, to hire a lawyer to help them not just even negotiate the agreement, but just review it and and make sense of it for them. A court is going to have a lot less sympathy on the employer in that situation who's trying to enforce it versus where the employer gives that to same agreement to someone who is more sophisticated, who goes out and hires an attorney to help negotiate it, and then it's negotiated at arm's length. If, down the line, that agreement gets litigated, I would imagine that a judge would have far less sympathy on the individual because they had counsel. They should have known what they were getting into. And if they had questions about the agreement, they could have asked. Yeah, but that, that brings me to another point, though. You know, the, the question is, is what, what should your sort of average citizen here do when they receive an employment agreement? And I think without a doubt, Get a competent attorney who's skilled in employment law and specifically dealing with restrictive covenants and, and contracts and agreements. Um, and someone who has not only looked at these and written them, but also litigated them. Because I think that there's a difference between an attorney who sort of, you know, maybe they get some boilerplate, they put it together, and then they, they, they kind of send it out into the world. And then someone who can see it through, you know, and, and has sort of tested 
those agreements and tested those provisions and has fought them. And, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and you start to learn uh, what courts are going to be tolerant of. So my feeling is these agreements can dictate someone's, not just their working life, but also their life for the next several years and possibly longer if you end up having to litigate. And so it's worthwhile to engage a competent attorney to help you right at the outset. Don't wait until there's a problem. You know, figure it out right away. I agree. And at a very base level, even if you don't hire an attorney, if you decide it's too expensive or for whatever reason, you, you just don't hire an attorney to review or negotiate your agreement, read the agreement, know what it is you're signing. I can't tell you the number of times where I've been in a situation with an individual who comes to me who says, I'm leaving company A, I'm going to work for company B. Can you help me with my onboarding at company B? And I say, okay. Well, as part of your onboarding, they're going to ask you whether you signed any sort of restrictive covenant agreement with company A that would impede your ability to go work for company B. So did you? And sometimes I'll get, uh, I don't know. I signed a lot of stuff during orientation. I don't know. Did you keep a copy? I'll go ask for one. I mean, okay, great. Yeah, I get the, you know, did you keep a copy of the of the documents? No, no, no. I, I don't know where that stuff is. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, it's very difficult right. to advise you if you're not keeping track of those papers. Um, but I, I mean, I'll tell you, people will sign agreements all the time that they don't read, you know. And it, it, am I guilty of this sometimes? Sure. If I'm installing some software on my computer, did I read every single software update? Or every update that has to do with, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, the Google suite of services or Facebook or something like that. No. No, but at the same time, their ability to kind of impact my life is is kind of limited in terms of, you know, what I might miss out on or, you know, I'm getting a free service here. So, you know, what can I really sue them for? Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, I think mandatory arbitration agreements that are contained in your cell phone provider. You know, do we sign them? Sure we do. Every, t- every time you, you uh, update the terms of service, every time you get a new phone, you're agreeing to arbitration, you're waiving your right to a class action, all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, not to say that there hasn't been litigation on that scale, but at the end of the day, what do you really lose if you have, you know, can't use your mobile phone the way you want it to? You're not losing money. I mean, at the end of the day, you're losing the amount that you're paying per month. It's maximum, and I think that it'd be very difficult to argue otherwise. But what are you losing if you didn't read an employment agreement and you don't realize you have some kind of restriction on whether or not you can go work for someone else and you didn't realize that you'd have to pay liquidated damages or something like, you know, like really, you know, the sky's the limit when it comes to what you may have agreed to. So um, I think it. you're right. I think it makes sense. Re- read it, try to understand it, and if you can't understand it, get help. Yeah, you can, you, you can lose one, two, sometimes three years in your chosen profession because you've signed a covenant not to compete. Or you could lose all of your customers, all of your clients, depending on how clients and customers, patients, whatever are, is defined in that agreement. You may leave and be able to go work for a competitor, but perhaps you didn't sign a non-competition agreement, but you signed a non-solicitation agreement, which limits your ability to solicit those customers, clients, patients, whatever, 
whom you serviced for your prior employer. So now you've got to start from scratch, even though you are able to make a living. But what kind of living really is it? So let's let's talk about that for, for a minute in terms of non-solicitation. I always find uh, on my side of the law that the uh, what I'm looking at most when it comes to a non-solicitation agreement is the definition of solicitation because you have you have sort of what's obvious. When we say solicit, it you know really what you're talking about is essentially stealing either other employees, coworkers, uh, management, or clients, you know, taking them away. So there's direct solicitation. And then where I start, you know, where my hackles start getting raised is when there's an overbroad definition for indirect solicitation, where you know you don't you don't know, you're not aware, whether you're aware or you're not aware. Um, or if, let's say, you go out, you start a business, and then you have someone who kind of independently, without knowledge, ends up coming across one of these clients in the future, and you've signed a, a kind of an onerous non-solicitation where you can't touch one of those clients directly or indirectly for the next 24 months. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Quincy Hawley, and I'm here to tell you about a new show. It's Vet Candy Rounds with the Hawleys. That's right, Dr. Tierra, the love of my life, and I have teamed up to bring you the most fascinating cases in the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or a podcast platform of your choice, only on Vet Candy Radio. I always question... It's one thing, you know, from A to B. So I'm A, and I sort of uh, push out and solicit those clients. But, you know, am I not permitted to announce sort of to the general world, advertise, market, hey, I've opened up shop. And then if those clients end up coming independently into my shop or calling independently, you know, the the question is, would that non-solicitation agreement then require you to turn them away? Because that's company A's uh, business, and you know that they they used to work with them, and so that's the question. Because depending on how much they compete, depending on how close these companies are, um, a non solicitation agreement could absolutely kill your business, absolutely. And 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 uh, you know it could, it could do it from the pers- you know is this a, a right or a wrong thing? You know at this point you know it's difficult to say. Like you said, it, it depends if it makes sense or not for the the company that is issuing a non-solicitation agreement to be so protective of whatever it is they're trying to protect. Um, you know, what, what are some of those things, Eric, from your perspective that would sort of, you know, affect whether or not a non-solicitation agreement even needs to be there and sort of in, in what form? Sure. So, on the one hand, at one end of the spectrum, you get the very broad, onerous non-solicitation agreement. And what I mean by that is some of what you said, uh, Omar, that you can't communicate or you can't communicate at all with your former clients, customers, patients, and the like. So if you run into someone at a cocktail party, technically, under that agreement, you can't talk to them or you'd be violating the agreement. I don't think that's the intent there, 
but the intent, but the real intent is you can't talk to them, and then all of a sudden that conversation pivots into, oh, Omar, where are you working now? I, I noticed you're not still with with that law firm. Oh, I'm more, I'm at this law firm now. Oh, I, I used to love working with you. I'd love to work with you again, right? I mean, the conversation didn't start out that way, but it became that, and it, it pivots into potentially a solicitation. So what you want to look at is how is solicitation defined in the agreement, right? Is it an affirmative solicitation on the part of the employee? Or can a client whom you don't even talk to solicit you to work with you again? That's important. Another issue is um, social media, right? Omar, you were talking about this. If I announce on, let's say, LinkedIn that I have moved from one business to another. Let's say I don't, I don't affirmatively do it, but I just update my LinkedIn profile and LinkedIn then sends out that blast to everyone. Congratulate Eric Meyer for going to work at such and such a law firm. Uh, don't worry, folks. I'm, I'm staying at Fisher Broyles for a while. I'm not leaving. So you know, is that a solicitation where LinkedIn does it for you? Ordinarily, if I'm negotiating that agreement, I'm putting a carve out in there for general LinkedIn blasts. These are not considered solicitations. Um, so, so those are some of the things you want to think about. And then also, ultimately, what is considered a client or a customer? Who is hands-on and who is hands-off? That's something you can negotiate at the front. If you're bringing with you to a business certain customers that you want to be able to take with you when you leave, negotiate that. Have that have that list of customers included as an exhibit to whatever agreement you sign. Or if we're going to limit the solicitations to customers that I had personal contact with or that I have trade secrets or confidential information about, that's what I generally counsel employers to do, to try and narrow the scope of the non-solicit to be more likely to be enforceable. Um, that's another consideration. So these are the reasons why you want to read your agreement and get a lawyer to help negotiate it for you. So I think I think also with non-solicitation agreements that there's a difference between certain categories of employees. So you have people sort of at the upper echelons who it would make more sense to have a non-solicit. And then you have people who are more rank and file, um, you know, administrative assistants that I, I think... Um, at least in, in, from my perspective, I think a non-solicitation agreement for administrative assistant is really not useful at all, you know. Um, same thing for a non-compete, I guess. So it, to me, there's sort of, a, sort of an upside-down um, umbrella in terms of how restrictive covenants should be enforced against employees. And sort of, to me, the more uh, rank-and-file employees really should not be restricted at all from movement. And as you go upwards in scope of responsibility, knowledge, and uniqueness, then I think that there's a much more compelling argument for having those employees restricted from just moving on and sort of t taking a lot of their team with them or the particular knowledge that they learn and then opening up shop for your biggest competitor. So I think that, at least in my view, that's something that I always advocate for is when I'm representing someone who's kind of in that the lower uh, echelon of employees, I'm going to try to restrict those restrictive covenants as much as possible. Sorry if that's confusing. I want to narrow them if I can or get out of them completely if they're just nonsensical.
So like you said, at one point, you know, if someone is part of the cleaning staff, you know, and I have seen uh, um, agreements, restrictive covenants applied kind of across the board. Hey, you're going to work here. You're going to sign this thing. And uh, I and, and I think even you mentioned at one point that if, um, you know, if a court sees that sort of these onerous agreements are being applied towards the rank and file, like say, for instance, someone who's, who's cleaning the office, it's probably not going to hold up. And so, um, I, and I'm sure that, you know, like anything, it depends, but I think that's something for everyone to kind of be aware of, you know, as we, as we look at these issues and go forward. And I think we've buried part of the lead, which is employers, when they're thinking about having individuals sign restrictive covenant agreements, should not go to the law firm of Google and Bing to find that restrictive covenant agreement. Employers should be consulting with their outside counsel to develop a template for a particular class or category of employees, or templates, plural, depending on who the individual is who's going to be signing it. Um, Because there are so many factors that are going to vary based on the situation, all the way from how many years the non-competition agreement is going to last, to what's going to be the forum or the choice of law in case we have to file a lawsuit. And this isn't something that you can go online and find and just plug and play without a lawyer because, Omar, to one of your points earlier, the reason you engage counsel is because they understand the nuances of, generally, it's state law. You know, what are the judges in New Jersey likely to do with this type of agreement versus what are the judges in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania likely to do with the same agreement. It could vary widely from state to state. Heck, it can vary widely from judge to judge. It often does. It does. It, that's true. And and something that that uh, I should say when we're talking, and I think that this is one of the things that we promised we'd be talking about in this podcast, is not only from the perspective of the employee, but also compliance for employers. And I think that one of those things that's very dangerous for employers when you're sort of, you know, exercising your Google foo instead of actually engaging competent employment counsel is that you may inadvertently be violating a state statute. And I have seen recently and for many years uh, agreements which violate state statutes, which are overbroad, which are um, explicitly outlawed. (laughs) They're not permitted to be written in this way, and yet they are. And so, you know, I receive an, uh, you know, an inquiry or a consult, I take a look at this agreement, and it blows my mind. Because, uh, you know, in that jurisdiction, this agreement is illegal. Not only is it illegal, now because the employer has violated the law, there's all these bad things that happen, including the ability for that uh, potential employee to now go to their Department of Labor and complain. Or they can also file a lawsuit if they don't get the job. And all of these crazy things happen um, which could have been prevented just by exercising some due diligence at the beginning. Um, and there's not for nothing, but I think it's also, uh, let's say that it was inadvertent. I think it's embarrassing to be called out by opposing counsel. Someone contacts you on behalf of the employer and says, look, 
uh, my client really wants to work here, but your agreement is totally illegal. <laughs> so they can't sign it. So we got to come up with something here that's actually going to fly. And I think that it ends up being you know, embarrassing. And I think that the employer will end up losing quite a bit of leverage in that negotiation process because, hey, you've been caught red handed. You've broken the law. And so now there's really not a lot of room for you to go uh, from here. So what are your what are your thoughts on that in terms of actually, you know, being careful about following the law versus just writing the agreement and then hoping for the best. You, you've nailed it. Um, there are times when I will get involved in drafting a, an employment agreement or more narrowly, a restrictive covenant agreement for an employee in a state in which I am not licensed to practice. So I will do my research. I, I did one recently in a state where I learned that if you have more than a one year restrictive covenant, it's not going to work. It's void. And was it Massachusetts? It was not Massachusetts. <laughs> okay, well, that's another one. <laughs> yeah. And if you sue the employee and lose, and there were some other circumstances associated with that, you're going to end up having to pay the employee's legal fees and expenses because you have violated the law. So when I do something like that, when I start working on a contract that's outside of the jurisdiction in which I practice, I will always consult with someone who is licensed to practice in that jurisdiction to review my work to make sure that it, it, that it passes muster under the law that we want to apply to that agreement. That's important. Otherwise, I'm engaging in the unauthorized practice of law and I'm doing my client a disservice at the very least. So, um, yes, it's very important not just to have capable counsel, but counsel that is licensed to practice in the proposed jurisdiction right and, and there's a, there's good reason for that you know am i am i competent to advise on florida law not right now i'm not i could do some study consult with someone and then eventually we could jointly come up with you know uh some kind of opinion but i would much prefer someone engage florida counsel that would be always my my first reaction is you have a florida issue go to florida <laughs> i'll help you find an attorney there but i would prefer not to extend you know my neck too far out um, because it may not work out. And there's just certain things. I've been practicing in New Jersey and New York a long time. And so you, you, you end up picking up a lot of, uh, so there's the, there's the case law and there's the, the statutes, but then you also know about sort of undercurrents. You know about interpretation. You know how certain judges react. And you know what's coming down the pipeline, what the, what the sort of the senators and the legislators are working on. So you know the landscape and how it's gonna how it's gonna go, and that that having that local edge, I think there's just really no um, substitute for it. So that's you know, if if it's not clear to you yet, it makes sense engage an attorney in your own jurisdiction who's competent to handle that issue. We'll be right back with more vet candy. Vet Candy IRL is an exciting podcast from the hearts, minds, and mouths of Shannon Gregoire, Tatiana Rogers, and Lexi Rodriguez. The show celebrates inspirational role models and focuses on empowerment and equality. Check it out on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and more. The, 
the we touched on this and I think it's a good time to go into it in terms of non-compete um, what are your what are your thoughts on uh, at least from your perspective of trying to uh, draft a non-compete that makes sense what do, what do you usually look at well I'll get with the client and I'll talk to them about what are you trying to achieve here what's the goal right if this person leaves and goes to work elsewhere, whether it's for a competitor, or they start up their own business, or they go outside the industry, but maybe they want to stay in touch with some of their customers and clients. What is the end goal here? What legitimate business need objective are we trying to, are we trying to satisfy? And then we'll work that into the restrictive covenant agreement. So if it's an industry in which um, I can separate someone's employment at the back end and after a year, but not quite two years, but after one year, the former employer can um, solidify all the client relationships and the confidential information that the individual had access to will not be not have much value anyway, then we'll limit the agreement to one year. We're not going to push for two years because it's unnecessary. So we, we try and have that conversation with clients, again, to just ultimately craft an agreement that meets the needs of the business and nothing more. Because again, if in the worst case scenario, we have to try to enforce this agreement, we want to be able to convince a judge that what we're doing is within the confines of the law, that we're not trying to be pigs because, well, hogs, pigs get fed, but hogs get slaughtered. And we don't want that. <laughs> right. And so when I when I look at a non-competition, uh, you know, clause, I call it a clause, could be a, it could be a non-competition agreement. But, you know, um, I'm looking at a couple things. I'm looking at the scope of time, like you just said, the scope of time should be reasonable. And I, you know, I may be pushing for sort of that six-month mark or something rather than the year. But still, you know, um, I'm happy to be reasonable as long as it makes sense for that particular class of employee. But then you're looking at the geography, and I find it very easy when someone works for one single plant or location and we can come up with sort of a reasonable area that makes sense. It's difficult, I think, when you're in this sort of epicenter of um, you know, states, for instance, Boston, you know, you run a 15 mile radius around Boston, you may end up hitting a whole bunch of other states. Is that reasonable or not? It does depend. But I, I, I find that those, those may be a little more difficult in terms of advising those employers or having to deal with that as an employee. But if someone's in the middle of Iowa, and you have a 30 mile radius, very simple. Uh, I find it more difficult when someone works for multiple locations, say, for instance, a business development or sales, and they're working across New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and they're kind of going in and out of all of these states. And if they sign a non-competition agreement, they may be restricted from the various plant locations, radiuses kind of growing out of each each plant location or each company headquarters. Um, and, and again, sort of the bigger your role, the more your responsibility, the more likely that, that the competition agreement is going to be a bit a bit broader and more likely that it's going to be held up. So I, I always think that to me is also important, really looking at the geography, trying to, 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 to deal with that. What are your thoughts on that? 
you raise a great point. And I'm not sure how much it applies to veterinarians and pet care, uh, but with remote workers, right? It's not just what is their footprint and where are they servicing customers, because those could reasonably be geographies in which you would not want the individual to compete after their employment ends. But another thing you got to think about is which state's law, this is getting really wonky here, do you want to apply in case you have to enforce the agreement? Is it where the company's headquarters is? Is it where the employee works remotely? Is it where the employee spends half of his or her week with clients, which is in a different, or customers, which is in a different state altogether? So these are just some of the things you have to think about because some laws, some state laws are going to be more employer friendly. Some state laws, axiomatically, are going to be more employee friendly. And if you're on my side, you want the employer friendly uh, laws to apply. I'd much rather have the law of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania apply, for example, than, I'm not licensed to practice there, but California, the state of California where non-competes don't work at all. So it's thinking about strategically not just the the geographic scope of where folks can compete, but also the geography of what law will apply to enforce the agreement. So so let's talk about that for a second. You know what you're what you're bringing up, uh, and it's kind of hit or miss. When you find when I find an an employer's agreement who has likely not been drafted by competent employment counsel, it's kind of hit or miss whether or not it even discusses where a lawsuit could be brought, or the potential for arbitration, or even choice of law, such as which state will apply. But if you are engaging counsel and really talking about this, and it makes sense to, to make those selections, obviously, I would be searching for the, uh, the, the state law, which would be more favorable to employees, but that's just me, you know, so, you know, I can't help that. Um, but that's also something I think that, you know, comes down to leverage. I I happen to think that it's very difficult when an employer wants to apply a certain type of law or certain state's law to its agreement. I find it very difficult as an employee to try to alter that or change that. Um, you know, because that may end up being a deal breaker. That could be a, a very big issue because someone wants to, let's say, they want to apply Delaware law and they really don't want to deal with New York, and they're just not going to budge on that. But again, the bigger the role, the bigger the responsibility. If a CEO comes in and they don't want Delaware law, then they may be able to get away with it. Uh, but that's always something to look at. Uh, and then also on top of that is is venue. You know, venue is just where the lawsuit can be brought, or not just lawsuit, but it could be an arbitration, could be a bench trial. And so uh, I find venue to be uh, equally important because you could get, you know, uh, you could get a great state law to apply to your agreement and end up being it could end up being brought in a venue which is just not going to respect it or not going to understand it and that's not going to be helpful you know so i and i I see all the time especially in federal court where you have a federal court case being brought in a jurisdiction and they're applying florida law they're applying california law because they're stuck with that but that is going to be tried in a different state and that's just where the employer kind of got dragged into and so um that could be uh, all kinds of interesting for a plaintiff's attorney. I think from a compliance standpoint, it's, it's really not great to be dragged into a different jurisdiction. Uh, you're applying your, your stated choice of law. You love it. 
but you have a really hostile judge <laughs> who doesn't understand it, doesn't like it. You know, for instance, you know, you're applying Texas law in New Jersey. I'm not sure the judge is going to have a good time doing that. You know, not not at all. And that's why venue and forum choice of law are generally the least negotiable components of a restrictive covenant agreement because most employers want uniformity. Some employers will vary and they'll say, look, all right, in order to have the best chance of success in enforcing this agreement, we'll apply the law of the jurisdiction in which the employee works. And that will also be the venue in case there's any lawsuit. So the employee can't say, whoa, whoa, they're dragging me across the country to Washington. Well, no, you know, you worked in North Carolina. We're going to sue you in North Carolina. We're going to apply North Carolina law. So, you know, you're on your home turf. Again, the employer is probably going to have the upper hand anyway in terms of, you know, there wasn't equal bargaining power at the outset. But at the same time, the employee has two less quivers or two less arrows in their quiver. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, to shoot, um, to say the place where I have to litigate this is unfair and the law that's getting applied here is unfair. You know, I always find that interesting is in in a in any bargain between an employer and an employee, you know, you kind of look at um, whether there was any unfairness present because I'm, you know, as a plaintiff's attorney, I'm looking at all kinds of things. Hey, is there any way I can strike this agreement completely? Because the more things that I can show that were unfair, the more likely that we can get out of it. Totally. And, and really, I'm, I'm talking about that in terms of litigation. Someone's getting sued, and I'm looking at, you know, uh, at, at sort of the genesis of all of this. When this agreement was entered into, was there any imbalance in bargaining power? Was, was there something un, uh, unfair? Was it unconscionable? Was there duress? You know, and that's only that's only fair, I think, that as, as an attorney, if I'm looking at this, that I'm going to be looking into these issues because... It would really be malpractice not to. <laughs> so, but uh, but that's the thing, you know. How many uh, arrows does this employee have, or, or or what kind of ammunition do they have to try to fight this? And um, you know, either any factor really standing on its own may not be enough, but you start to add them up, and it can really be persuasive to kind of a friendly judge. Um, had something recently where, you know, at least in the jurisdictions that I practice in, if in, an agreement doesn't necessarily have to be translated into someone's native language in order to hold up. And it's kind of been found over and over again that if someone signed an agreement, even if they didn't understand it or speak the language, then they're going to be held to it because you're presumed to have understood the agreement. Frankly, I think that's very unfair, but that's kind of the state of the law. But that doesn't mean that you can't use it if, for instance, you have that plus you had also you know, a one-hour deadline to read and review the arbitration agreement and all this other stuff and, and return it. And also they were being threatened that their pay was going to be withheld until they returned it. And, you know, now you start to add other uh, factors in, which I think are unnecessary. I think that the, you know, it would make more sense, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, but it would make more sense for the employer to kind of, you know, come up with a standard Give people a standard amount of time. Explain what will happen if the agreement's not returned, and you know, kind of take it down a notch and, and act in a very mature way, so that later on, if someone like me is looking at that, uh, you know, kind of how that agreement came about, really, there's just not a whole lot for me to to kind of take apart there. Yeah.
right back with more vet candy hello this is caitlin palmer you probably know me as the desk wench you know the sweet tiktok receptionist who has to deal with the evil karen stevens well if you like that you are going to love my new podcast desk wench confessions on my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. I agree with you, Omar. I mean, if an employee or an individual who's not yet an employee comes to me, or a client comes to me and says, this, this individual needs more time to consider this agreement. Well, unless there's really a reason for a hard deadline, let's give them the time to consider the restrictive covenant agreement, get counsel, review it. Because again, at the back end, when we want this thing to be enforceable, we can say, look, we gave them more time. They consulted with counsel. We negotiated at arm's length. We changed this in this term, possibly. Um, so those are all going to help my client's efforts at attempting to enforce the agreement. What might undermine my client's efforts to enforce the agreement have to do with the circumstances surrounding the separation of employment. Like, perhaps you've seen this, Omar, a reduction in force when we're talking about 50 individuals, or even, let's just say, 10 individuals, 5 individuals, who are affected and lose their jobs. But they all have restrictive covenant agreements. If those want individuals, they can gain some leverage, strength in numbers. If they are concerned about the enforceability or they want to go out and be able to earn a living in their chosen profession, let's say I lay off five people. They could find the same lawyer and go into court before I do as the former employer and seek what's called a declaratory judgment saying that this agreement is unenforceable. Now, I'm not just going up against one individual, I'm going up against five. And the optics of putting five people out of work is a lot different than the optics of putting one person out of work. So that's something to consider as well. Well, we've spoken about definitions, but also I think we talked about sort of trade secrets um, and and things like that. And I, I wanted to get your take on this in terms of, you know, our, I guess our, our views. For me, when I look at sort of the trifecta of, of confidentiality, proprietary information, and trade secrets, you know, I find that a lot of agreements are sort of cookie cutter. They are overbroad, over-inclusive, and it's just anything and anything that could possibly come across your desk or in your email is going to be confidential, proprietary, and, and a trade secret. There's no distinguishing between those terms usually. And... Um, I, you know, for me, from my perspective, I find that that's an unrealistic view of what those terms actually mean. And that could actually end up defeating the purpose later on when you've gone through such an, sort of an overbroad definition. And then you try to litigate that in the future. I think that could backfire. I don't know what your experience is on that, but I have had some pretty decent luck with trying to defeat some of these, uh, you know, inclusions to a confidentiality agreement or saying something is a trade secret when 
it's kind of out there for everybody. You know, the, the identity of key employees. Well, you know, on your About Us page, it says the identity of all your key employees. <laughs> so that's not a trade secret. Or, uh, you know, the identity of customers. Well, you know, on the uh, Advertise page, it has here the identity of all your customers because you have a list of 47 logos of all the customers that you deal with. <laughs> no, I literally <laughs> had that case. Yep. Yeah, and so it's, it, you know, there's what the agreement says, and then there's what reality is, and usually there's a difference between those two. And so plaintiff's employer like me, I'm sorry, a plaintiff's attorney like me is going to kind of make hay as much as they can with respect to those differences. But, you know, what do you do when advising employers when you're putting together these these things with respect to defining, you know, confidentiality or proprietary and, and so trade secrets? So there are certain factors that, the law generally, federal law, would consider not to be confidential. In fact, you could get yourself in trouble by including them in a confidentiality agreement. Salaries, benefits, other terms and conditions of employment that employees are allowed to discuss with one another under a federal law called the National Labor Relations Act. So if you call them confidential, whether in a confidentiality agreement or in your handbook, right? You might have some trouble with the National Labor Relations Board. Whether you have a union in your workplace or not, you don't want that, okay? And some state laws mm-hmm. too, right? Some state laws don't don't permit you to keep salaries confidential in that way where you'd be suing someone because they disclosed the salary. So that's some low-hanging fruit to pull out of your confidentiality agreement. The other thing you can do too is to put a carve-out that says that if certain information goes public, through no one's fault, that is to say, it it just naturally makes it into the public domain. It's okay. Some things do, right? Um, That information is no longer considered confidential. And and I put that pretty much in any agreement that I draft. I think it it goes without saying, and any judge would look at it that way, that if there's something that slips into into the public domain, no one does it nefariously, then it's not confidential. That's axiomatic. The last part is a pragmatic point, okay? Are we going, is my client going to enforce a confidentiality agreement against a former employee because they, I don't know, have some five-year-old marking materials that they didn't return to the company that really have no longer, no longer have any value to the company? Probably not. What we're doing is we're going after the employees who we know went to work for a direct competitor. We can tell by forensics, slipped in a thumb drive into their computer on the day they left and swept everything off their desktop into the thumb drive. Or we can tell by going through and looking at the server, see that they started emailing themselves confident, you know, truly confidential information about two weeks before they gave notice. Those are the people we're going after. We're going after the people who are bad eggs because judges are going to view them as bad eggs. And no matter how broad our confidentiality agreement is, if we can establish that someone was taking confidential information with them on the down low before they ever gave notice to us that they were leaving, they're going to lose. We're going to win. So that's something as a pragmatic matter that I'm looking at. What is the behavior of the employee beyond what the agreement says? But, but I'll give you a counterpoint to that, though. Sure. Um, because I see this a lot. And there are those bad eggs out there, and um, and I wouldn't represent the bad eggs, <laughs> but 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 there but there are also people who uh, who felt pressured 
they felt like they were going to lose their job. And, you know, this is this is why we do what we do, because, you know, I'm representing the employee, you're representing the, the employer, and we end up litigating these issues. But sometimes people will feel pressured, and they'll kind of, they kind of start this gathering behavior, you know, like, I really need to protect myself. I need to download these emails because this shows that I was being mistreated and, and all this other stuff. And they may do, they may intersect in the sort of the confidentiality uh, realm there, but really their purpose is to protect themselves and to preserve evidence in case this goes wrong or because they have a wage claim or whatever it is. And so, you know, when you look at it from a forensic standpoint, it is absolutely suspicious. This person downloaded 67 emails off of our server and put it on a thumb drive or they they transferred 600 spreadsheets yes it's their monthly reports but but they transferred it to their thumb drive so that's that i think that intersection of you know the employer's legitimate interest in maintaining confidentiality and then the employee's interest in trying to protect themselves that's where you end up having a lot of friction and that's why those cases i think sort of Although they may resolve at one point, they end up in very sort of um, uh, divisive litigation over many years before you can actually come to terms. And, you know, and a lot of times I think it's difficult to even get your hands on on what the stuff was. You have to go through experts and you have to preserve hard drives and emails and all this other stuff. And it takes months and months and months to do it. And by that time, you already filed your, your request for an injunction, you know, and then the employee has already hired an attorney and now we're just going to end up fighting. <laughs> so, you know, um, but, but I just wanted to point out, you know, sometimes it may look suspicious and it could even be suspicious, but ultimately the intent of the employee is, Hey, you know, I, I was feeling, uh, you know, kind of, um, uh, the relationship wasn't going well, thought I was going to get fired, not happy about it. I blew the whistle three months ago. And so now I'm, I'm preserving evidence. So that could be, could be something that's at play. I agree. I think a lot of it comes down to, in a word, motive, right? What is the employee trying to accomplish here? If they're trying to accomplish gathering evidence to support an underlying discrimination claim, I mean, some states permit that. New Jersey allows you to communicate with your lawyer uh, certain information about your underlying discrimination claim that may actually be confidential versus do we think this individual is gearing up to go to set up shop across the street using our confidential information. If it's the latter, we're going in guns blazing. If it's the former, we're taking a more cautious approach. Yes, we still want to protect our confidential information and, and apply some prophylactic measures, but we're not as ready, fire, aim as we would otherwise be in the situation where someone's going out to compete with us. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Julio Alonso. Do you want to keep up with everything Vet Med? Then check out my show on Vet Candy TV. We talk about clinical updates, science news, plus some of the coolest people in our profession. Stream at My Vet Candy 24-7 on YouTube, iTunes, and most other video platforms. Let me just give a word of caution to anyone that, that kind of takes this as advice or anything. Of course, this is not legal advice. We gave our disclaimer. But um, 
any employees who are feeling that they're having issues, harassment, discrimination, toxic workplace, whatever it is, and you feel the need to start preserving evidence or, or anything like that, I think your first and best step is to consult with a, a competent employment attorney in your state because there's lots of ways you can trip up. You just heard about one. You could end, end up inadvertently violating a, you know, a federal trade secrets act, or you could inadvertently violate your confidentiality agreement. Um, I think also, and, and this has to be brought up, there are certain ways that these uh, issues can end up becoming criminal. And so taking evidence, taking documents or whatever it is in the, in the wrong way could end up being a crime, depending on your state. And so someone could be end up facing jail time or an indictment, grand jury proceedings. Uh, and then, you know, um, I guess the other thing is, is you just have to um, be careful when preserving it. Let's say, for instance, someone decides to record a phone call. Well, there are federal wiretapping statutes. There are state wiretapping statutes, which restrict whether or not someone is able to record a phone call, depending on where everyone is in that phone call, you know. Um, and so there there are just a sort of a myriad of ways where someone could get themselves in trouble, although they are innocently attempting to preserve evidence. You said motive, right? It's an innocent motive. But some, you know, when it comes to uh, civil litigation, that motive may matter a bit. When it comes to criminal issues, the motive may matter for sure. Um, but, you know, preferably, I'd prefer no one to have potential criminal issues on their hands because they decided to start preserving evidence. Just, you know, do your do what you can to talk to a lawyer. Hey, keeping a notebook, <laughs> you know, keeping a journal violates no statutes as far as I'm aware. Check with your employment counsel. But, um, you know, that's in your brain. You're writing it down uh, as long as you're not copying confidential information. But, you know, once you start uh, taking emails, taking documents, recording phone calls, now you're stepping into some very hazy territory there. So word of caution. Just know that I'm going to get to see everything in that notebook when you sue us, though. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah, and and, and we should we might mm -hmm. as well say you know if you're going to litigate, it's open season on all everything you thought that was that was going to be confidential, messages, uh, Facebook Messenger, Instagram messages, you know, text messages, pictures, essentially anything and anything that could somehow be relevant to potential litigation. Um, is going to be kind of open season. And, and in, in me as a plaintiff's attorney, it's very difficult to defend against that because most judges are not going to, you know, really care. Like, oh, you know, your, your client doesn't want to turn over their Facebook messages. Too bad. <laughs> you know, I'm signing the order. Get it done by Friday. And that's how that usually goes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, when it comes to the discovery, it's very, it's very onerous. It's very expansive. So if you are going to have an issue, if you are going through issues, kind of restrict all the terrible things that you might be saying about people or whatever it is. I, I have had issues where clients have, you know, sued based on discrimination or something like that. And the words that they use to describe their supervisor um, are very similar to the words that they have been offended about. And so, you know, that really doesn't bode well for the employee there. You know, when you're making fun of someone based on their religion or their race or the way that they look, um, you know, that's not going to come across well. And even if you get past summary judgment, even if a judge kind of just lets you through, the jury's not going to like you, you know? So, uh, so what, what about, um, 
and it, this is probably we you know we could end up picking up this topic another day but you know your thoughts on arbitration i mean I assume that the employment bar is sort of gung-ho for arbitration in any and every case, but I might I might be being a bit overbroad here and not giving you credit. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Personally, I'm not a big fan of arbitration. I, I like really? the, no, I, I like the certainty of uh, the, it's more formulaic, more comfortable to be for me in federal court. Uh, if I'm in New Jersey, I'm in state court very often. I've heard it's malpractice to bring plaintiff claim, employment claims in federal court from the plaintiff's bar. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm in state court a lot. But I, I do like the the certainty, the repetition of of state and federal court. There is an advantage, and I don't know how far we want to go with this, to having a class action or collective action waiver probably not going to apply much in the context of restrictive covenants, but more in employment claims generally. We talked about it earlier, having five employees sign it, you know, go for a declaratory judgment action. Well, imagine 500 employees who believe that they've been shorted on overtime, bringing a lawsuit as a class or collective in federal court. If you have an arbitration agreement with a class action waiver, now it has to be 500 separate actions, which could be death by 500 paper cuts, but good luck lining up all 500 people to bring those arbitration claims. So in that regard, it provides leverage to the employer, but the forum arbitration versus uh, courtroom litigation, I like litigation better. Yeah, I, I like litigation better, but but I will say that there's sort of a, a movement nationally across the defense bar to kind of restrict more and more claims to arbitration. I understand that, that they feel that it's cheaper, for sure. Um, it's usually quicker. And there's limited ability to appeal for the employee, really for anyone really after the after the decision is done. And it remains confidential. So there are positives, I think, you know, in terms of management and how they feel about arbitration as an employee i think that those you know um don't necessarily work in your favor because as a at least as a single plaintiff you know other than paying for your lawyer and however that is chosen to be done you know is done but the cost is either the same or it costs more to arbitrate because you have to now pay a share of the arbitrator fees um normally the a lot of leverage that comes from you know uh wielding the power of the lawsuit is the publicity and so if you're not able to use that you know the threat of a public filing or whatever it is as one more sort of arrow in your quiver then i think you lose you're losing out there um but i don't want to give up too many secrets of what how we feel about arbitration but i'll just say this i don't like it (laughs) i don't think it should exist for most cases but that doesn't mean it's going anywhere i i think that there's a stated trend to uh arbitrate uh, most employment claims a- across the board, except I think for uh, sexual harassment, right? Correct. So we have a recent law in the books about that. What do you think about that, Eric? Or, or what do you know about that? Uh, it was uh, spearheaded by Gretchen Carlson um, in her dealings with Fox News, and it became she became a lightning rod for uh, not having to arbitrate sexual harassment or sexual assault claims for some of the reasons that you've cited, Omar, the lack of publicity. Um, and, um, and it became law. 
Now, generally speaking, sexual harassment claims are not going to be brought in a class. Usually, usually we're talking about single plaintiff cases. But now there's also federal legislation pending called the FAIR Act, which would essentially do away with all forms of employment arbitration, both single plaintiff cases, single employee cases, and also class. That passed the House of Representatives last week. Now it's going to the Senate where, knock wood, it has no chance of passing because it won't get past a filibuster. But that's the next step is, okay, we've done away with well, not done away with arbitration of sexual harassment claims. A plaintiff who has signed an arbitration agreement has the option but not the obligation to arbitrate those claims. But this next step is basically to get rid of all forms of employment arbitration, and I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And let me understand. I mean, I, I know you have sure. a blog. It's very <laughs> popular. And uh, you have a blog post on this, right? Okay. I thought, I thought I read that. I thought I got the email notice, but I just wanted to make sure before I send people there. So, so, um, so that's good. So if, if you want to read more, you can head over to Eric's blog. And what is that again, Eric? That is theemployerhandbook.com. So um, we're going to keep coming back. I, I think we have a, a lot to talk about in terms of topics that are important to employees and employers. I think, you know, this is interesting. Uh, I had a lot of fun because I, I think that, you know, my perception of how Eric would view certain things was off base. And I, th- I feel like we're, you know, we're really nearer in terms of ideology and how reasonable we are to each other. I don't know what Eric thinks about me, but I happen to think he's very reasonable. So, Thank you. So it's, it's, <laughs> so, so it's, fun, it's fun to hear that. It's fun to, it, to, to talk to someone who, you know, typically we're on opposing sides uh, of the aisle. But it's nice to to hear your your thoughts and your reasoning, um, and it, and again, I mean, I I think it's important for your clients, your you know, the employers to protect themselves, and I just want to make sure that my clients and the employees can protect themselves too. I appreciate that, and just as as a disclaimer to the audience, this is my public persona. When you hand me an agreement with a five year non compete and a nationwide geographic scope, and you're trying to enforce it against the lowest level employee possible, I'm going to do my very best to enforce that for you, okay? If I can, in good faith. I will be your most zealous advocate. I may not love the agreement, but look, I'm on the defense side of the V for a reason. So I try to be pragmatic. I'm, I'm saying this somewhat in jest. Um, and and I, I try to preach pragmatism to clients, but every once in a while, you can only play the, the hand you're dealt. And if it's a tough hand, I'm going to play it. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. 
Okay, so this has been an episode of Working Class. I am Omar A. Lopez. And I'm Eric Meyer. And so we hope that you join us next time for another exciting topic in employment law from the employee and the employer perspective. See you next time.